Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. As we turn to God's Word this morning, and we're turning back to the Gospel of Mark, we had a brief break last week for our missions conference, but we're in the middle of Mark chapter 10, and so I invite you to open your Bibles there. Just as a a brief reminder throughout Mark chapter 10, Jesus has been drawing our attention to the nature of faith and discipleship been asking the question, how do we get into the kingdom of heaven? A question was asked when the children came to Jesus and the disciples would have kept the children from coming. But Jesus said, no, anyone who would enter the kingdom of God must do so as a child. Then he challenged the allegiance of the rich young ruler who though he had kept many commandments, still was not willing to follow Jesus wherever Jesus called, for wealth was still a priority in his heart. And today we're looking at the rest of chapter 10, and the focus here remains on these themes of faith in Jesus and following after Jesus. As Jesus responds to two questions that are put to him. So if you would join me, we're going to pick up our reading in verse 32 and read to the end of Mark chapter 10. This is God's word. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. 
And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Father, we thank you for your word. and We would ask that you would send your spirit to apply it to our hearts, that we might know Christ and follow him this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the pages of history are filled with the human wreckage that is caused by the quest for power and control. Few things have led men and women to more quickly turn against their fellow humans to destroy human life than the allure of power and control. Of course, there are a few examples of men who had power, who used it to serve others and then laid it down. And these examples stand out all the more brightly because of their rarity. If you know your Roman history, you might think of the name of Cincinnatus, who was pulled from his farm and given absolute dictatorial power in order to rescue Rome in a time of crisis. And in a matter of but 16 days, he defeated all of Rome's enemies, turned over his power, and returned to his little farmette to keep plowing his fields. Or maybe maybe you think of George Washington, who served two terms as president, but then gave up his authority, refusing to run for a guaranteed third time in office and returned to Mount Vernon prompting King George of England to say, if he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. Well, these are examples, perhaps, of power used to serve rather than to control. When we turn to Mark chapter 10, we hear Jesus calling his disciples to serve rather than lord it over others. And it calls to mind examples like Cincinnatus or George Washington. But I want us to make sure we we hear from Scripture here that while Jesus' call may and hopefully will lead to civic virtue like theirs, his call is not primarily about civic virtue. Once again, the central issue here is about following our Savior. Jesus is concerned about our relationship to him. And so as he fields two very different requests in this passage— The main point of Jesus' response to both of these requests is again the nature of discipleship or what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so we want to look at both these requests and Jesus' answers and what it tells us about following him. So let's begin with the first request in verses 32 to 45. And I'm just going to warn you, if you're a clock watcher, I'm going to spend most of my time on the first point here. So don't get nervous. And here we go. Jesus is on the road. Through the last 20 verses, Jesus has gone from the eastern side of the Jordan River. He's crossed the Jordan River and he's arrived at the town of Jericho, which is only 20 miles from Jerusalem. Only 20 miles from the destination that Jesus is pursuing and the fulfillment of his ministry. And the determination with which Jesus has set his eyes on Jerusalem and is pursuing that calling is evident from the picture Mark paints in verse 32. 
You see his description there. Jesus walking out ahead of the group. Not just leading the group, but walking out ahead of them. Mark says that those who followed him were both amazed and afraid. Now the text doesn't tell us why the disciples were amazed or afraid. But I want us to remember that John chapter 11 tells us at about this very time that the disciples expressed concern to Jesus about going to Jerusalem and said, why would you go to Jerusalem? They want to kill you there. In fact, you may, you may remember that droll comment of, of Thomas's, known for his droll comments. Well, we might as well go up and die with him if he's going to go there. This is the, the concern of the disciples at this point in Jesus' ministry. And so Mark's word indicate here that Jesus is walking with clear confidence in resolution toward Jerusalem, the very city that everyone knows holds danger for him. And so I think it's most likely that it's this confidence in resolution towards the place of danger that fills those who follow him with amazement and trepidation. But Jesus is not deterred. Instead, he takes the third opportunity in his many chapters to explain to his disciples what's about to happen to him. This is the most detailed description he's given yet. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and then they will deliver him over to the Gentiles after condemning him to death and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. You know, this is, this is the exact program of what's going to happen to Jesus step by step in the coming weeks. It also recalls the prophecy of Isaiah 53, which, which paints this very picture. And so from our perspective, it's hard not to imagine how the disciples couldn't get it or at least recognize what was happening as, as these events play out. But, but Luke, in his account, says the disciples still understood none of these things. It appears that even their foreboding about the danger of Jerusalem still did not for a second suggest to them that the Messiah could actually die. And Luke tells us they had no idea what he meant by rising from the dead. And their lack of understanding, I think, is immediately clear from the request that James and John immediately bring. After talking about his death, they ask a question about his kingdom apparently thinking that he is about to come into his kingdom. Now, if you look at the question in verse 35 there, the sons of Zebedee start by trying to pull a classic sixth grade trick. Now, I've got two sixth graders, so I'm very familiar with this trick. And it goes something like this. Dad, will you promise to do what I'm about to ask you to do? And I say, well, what do you want me to do? And they say, no, no, you have to promise first. And then the answer is easy, because I know the answer is no. But that's what James and John do here. They say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus says, well, what do you want me to do for you? And I want you to pause there for just a second and realize the significance of that question. And let's just acknowledge this is a key question for us and for all those that Jesus meets. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Do you want him to forgive your sins? Or do you want him to make life go well for you? Or to at least keep you from any really bad suffering? Or to solve your anxiety? Or to make sure your kids are Christians? What is it that you want Jesus to do for you? Because as I reflect on this, 
There are thousands in our generations who have turned away from Jesus because Jesus has not done whatever they wanted him to do for them. Though Jesus never promised to do whatever they wanted him to do. The problem was not with Jesus. The problem was with their desires and expectations. So as we listen to this question, let's check our hearts too and ask, what is it that we want Jesus to do for us? So Jesus asked this question and James and John reply in the Walker Expanded Translation, nothing much, Jesus, just the two best seats in your kingdom, one on your left hand and one on your right hand. Now, the way the seats worked was something like the platform in the Olympics where the the center was the position of power and then the the second most important position was on the right hand and the third most important on the left hand. But Jesus' response is about as blunt as we can imagine. He says, you don't know what you're asking. And the disciples don't know what they're asking. They've not understood Jesus' threefold prediction of his coming death and resurrection. How could they possibly understand all that's going to unfold in Jesus' life in the coming weeks? And, and beyond that, how could they know what was ahead of them in their lives as well? They quite literally do not know what they are asking. But Despite this request and our temptation to criticize them, we should probably have some sympathy for them as well. Because how many times have we prayed for something or desired something without having any idea what's best for us or what we're asking? So far from causing us to criticize the disciples, this should give us a measure of humility in our prayers. Because while we are invited to present all our requests to the Lord, we do not know his future plans or what he will have us go through. And our requests are so often tinged with the same self-interest that characterized the disciples here rather than his glory and our good. So let's, let's just hear Jesus' response to the disciples here with a measure of humility and a reminder to us when we present our requests before the Lord. But having told the disciples that they don't know what they're asking, Jesus follows up with a question of his own. You see it there in verse 38. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, if you look back through scripture, what you'll see is that the cup is an image that is used to describe the lot that is assigned to you by the Lord. Sometimes it was a positive thing, like in Psalm 16, but most often it referred to sufferings and drinking the cup uh, of God's wrath. Baptism is used this way less frequently than the cup, but it appears to refer to the events or trials that you will undergo, the things you will go through. And so Jesus is asking Will you drink the cup, the lot assigned to me? Will you undergo the things that I undergo? Now, the disciples appear to take this as a question of their loyalty and their commitment. Like, will you be willing to stick with me through everything that it takes for me to come into my glorious kingdom? That that seems to be what they're thinking. And and so they, they staunchly stand up and say, yes, Jesus, we are able. Now, Jesus... Jesus' cup, Jesus' baptism, of course, are going to be nothing less than his rejection, betrayal, suffering, and death. But despite their ignorance and not knowing what they're saying, Jesus affirms their answer. He says, yes, you are right. You will drink the cup that I drink. You will be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. 
For while Christ's suffering is unique in its ability to satisfy the wrath of God, the disciples will absolutely know the fellowship of his sufferings. They too will be beaten and persecuted, killed and exiled in the name of Christ. And so Jesus says, yes, you will join me in fellowship in these sufferings. However, Jesus adds, though that is the case, the places on my right hand and on my left hand are not mine to give. They are for those for whom they are prepared. I want you to just think about this combination of Jesus' answers here in verses 39 and 40. He first gives an affirmation of suffering, that we will suffer in fellowship with him. But then he also gives an affirmation that God has prepared our paths and our places ahead of time. We don't get to choose our path. We don't get to choose our place. The Lord gives us our cup. He appoints our place, which means that the whole matter of what we go through and where we will end up is all surrendered to God. In fact, I want you to notice something very specifically here. Do you notice that Jesus never clarifies the disciples' misunderstanding? They say, yes, we can drink the cup. And he never says, well, let me just make sure you know what that means first. He doesn't do that. He doesn't give them a waiver to fill out. He doesn't show them the fine print at the bottom so that they know what's ahead. He doesn't do that. And that's the point. Because the point is that Jesus is our sovereign and good Lord. We give ourselves to him. We follow him and we trust him for whatever the path involves. It's about following him, not knowing everything ahead of time and then deciding whether we're up for it or not. One commentator summarized it this way. He said, The disciples are not to follow Jesus because they know in advance what will happen. The rightness of their way is determined solely by the fact that it is where Jesus leads. And that is the main question. That is the nature of discipleship. And so that is Jesus' call to us as well. Well, Jesus packed a lot into that one sentence reply. But somewhere in the middle of his reply, the rest of the disciples figured out what was going on. And they are indignant at James and John. Maybe, maybe you kids, if any of you kids have ever been in that uh, situation and know that surge of indignation when you realize that your younger sibling thought to sneak into the kitchen and ask your mom for the last cookie before you thought to do so. How unfair is that? And that's, that's, that's something of the, the indignation that the disciples feel here. Like, we didn't think to ask for that place, but how dare they think to ask for these best places in the kingdom? I want you to note that their indignation is just a sign that they're in the same place as James and John. They're no better off for having not thought of this. They're all jockeying for the best place for themselves. And so Jesus pauses and calls all the disciples to himself and challenges them directly. He says the Gentiles are always lording it over others and exercising authority and promoting themselves. But it shall not be so among you. You, he says, have an entirely different goal than the Gentiles. Not power and authority, not control or self-promotion, but serving others as a slave. That is your call as my disciples. You know, the word servant, by definition, implies that your time and your resources and your opportunities in your life are not your own. They are used to serve others. And a slave literally belongs to someone else with a responsibility to live for them rather than himself. And those are the words, servant and slave. 
that Jesus chooses to describe what our lives should look like if we would follow him. Why? Why does he choose those words? Well, because that's what Jesus does for us. And once again, you see that serving others rather than lording it over them is not a matter of uh, civic virtue or personal responsibility or being better citizens, though we, we hope that that would result from knowing Christ. No, serving others and giving ourselves for the sake of others is what Jesus himself, the Son of God, did for us. Jesus says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The reason it is a call for us is because it is what Jesus did for us. And that is what it looks like to follow him. But I don't want you to miss the glory of that comment. Because in the glory of that comment, Jesus brings us right back to what he has done for us. J.C. Ryle focuses in on this verse and writes, This is one of those expressions which ought to be carefully treasured up in the minds of every true Christian. By that death, Jesus made a full and complete satisfaction for man's countless transgressions. When he died, he died for us. When he suffered, he suffered in our stead. When he hung on the cross, he hung there as our substitute. When his blood flowed, it flowed as the price for your soul and mine. See, this is what the Son of God came and did for us. And Jesus' conclusion is, disciples, this is what I have done for you. And if you would come and join me in the kingdom, you have to follow me. I spent my life for the sake of others. So come and do the same. So are we ready to check our hearts to see whether this is the pattern we're following? You know, in our fallen sinfulness, St. Augustine used to say that we are all curved in on ourselves. What a great phrase, isn't it? To describe the natural state of our hearts. And so bending our wills out to others in order to imitate Christ is going to be a constant adjustment to our natural habit. Even when it comes to our spouses and our kids, the people we love the most, we still so often consider ourselves rather than them, don't we? How much more when it comes to those around us do we default to thinking of ourselves rather than how we ought to serve others for his sake? Christian counselor Ed Welch puts it this way. He says, in our sinful nature, we tend to view ourselves as needy and we expect others to fill up and meet our needs. But actually, our only need is for the love of God poured out on us in Jesus Christ. And Christ has poured himself out on us so fully that we are now filled to the overflowing. And as a result, Welch argues, We need people less and are to love people more out of the overflow of Christ's love given for us. So are we ready to do that? That's our call as a a church community. That's our call individually. That we as followers of Christ should be proactive, taking initiative and looking out for others, to pursue them in love, to give ourselves as servants for their sake. That's what Christ did for us to redeem us from sin. How could we not do the same if we are united to him and following him? So this is Jesus' point as he denies request number one. Request number one is denied because of the nature of following Jesus. But let's move on to question number two, which comes in verses 46 to 52. 
While Jesus is passing through Jericho, a whole crowd is following him. And I think this is an interesting note because earlier in his ministry, it seems likely whenever a crowd was following Jesus that he would turn around and teach them. He would teach them who he is and and about the kingdom of God. But here he has his face set to Jerusalem. It seems that his priority has shifted from proclaiming the kingdom to now accomplishing the work that God had given him to do. And so this crowd is following along behind as he pursues the road. But the hubbub of this crowd does not escape the notice of the blind beggar sitting by the roadside. And so we meet Bartimaeus. Now surely Bartimaeus has heard of Jesus. It says when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he immediately began crying out. But notice that he doesn't just know who Jesus is. He has also decided for himself the identity of Jesus. Because he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Well, who was the son of David? The son of David was the title for God's promised king, the coming Messiah. Bartimaeus was confirming his belief that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who would come to announce good news, heal the blind and the lame, and set the captives free. And so so Bartimaeus cries out for Jesus, the Messiah, to have mercy on him. Now, the crowds here respond the same way the disciples did when the little children tried to get to Jesus. They try to shush him up and say, This is the son of David. He's going on to Jerusalem. He doesn't have time for beggars in the lowest and the least. Who do you think you are expecting him to give you his attention? But that rebuke only made Bartimaeus cry out all the more. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And so Jesus halts his march to Jerusalem and says, call him. And Bartimaeus, I love the words there in verse 50, threw off his cloak and sprang up to come to Jesus. His eagerness and desire and desperation to get to his Savior. And Jesus has mercy on him. He calls for him and then asks him a question. What do you want me to do for you? Now, does that question sound familiar? Do you notice anything about that question? It's the same question Jesus put to the disciples. Again, I think Jesus loves to draw us out and force us to articulate what is it that we want Jesus to do. But Bartimaeus' desire and request and motivation are so different than the question of the disciples. The disciples asked for honor and recognition for themselves. Bartimaeus asks for mercy. The disciples asked for the best thrones in glory. Bartimaeus asked that he might be healed. The disciples came with an assumption of their worthiness We're going to go through it all with you, Jesus, so can we have the best seats next to you? But even the wording of Bartimaeus' question indicates that he came in the humility of faith. So the ESV translates his request in verse 51 there, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. But the Greek here is actually Rabboni, which is used only here and by Mary Magdalene when she meets her resurrected Lord in the garden outside of the tomb. Rabboni is a heightened form of the, of the term, and it's a personalized form of the term. Rather than just being an address of teacher, it means my teacher, my Lord, my master. What a difference in the attitude and nature of these requests. And Jesus recognizes this response for what it was, 
a request for mercy and for healing, an expression of faith in him as the son of David, his master and his Lord. And so he says to Bartimaeus, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Haven't we heard that response from Jesus so many times in the book of Mark? Go your way. Your faith has made you well. Because it's faith, trusting Jesus, that is the doorway into the kingdom of God. It's the response that Jesus desires and loves to reward with healing and restoration and redemption. For this response focused the mind and the soul on Jesus as our hope and our Savior. Can I draw your attention to one more detail? Verse 52, the last verse there. Jesus says to the man, your faith has made you well. Go your way. But Bartimaeus doesn't go on his own way. He doesn't go away on his way. No, it says he immediately followed Jesus on his way. And there we are, right back to the main theme of the whole chapter. We are to come to Jesus with childlike faith, which Bartimaeus has demonstrated But genuine faith will always lead us to a willingness to follow Jesus, a desire to follow Jesus. It will mean coming and giving up allegiance to and desire for things of this world and to follow wherever Jesus leads. It means come, follow Jesus in drinking the cup of suffering. It means come, follow Jesus as a servant to give your life for others as he did for you. As I think about this call, I'm reminded of the story of Ian. The story was shared by David Platt. Ian was a young woman he met who grew up as part of a tribe that prided itself for being 100% Muslim in everything they did. Everything about Ian's life, her relationships, her social standing, the rhythm of her days was all wrapped up in Islam. But one day... A missionary met her and had the chance to explain the gospel to her, to tell her the truth that God loved her so much that he had sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for her sins. With fear and trepidation in her eyes, Ian said, well, how would one become a Christian? Now this missionary's answer is not, oh, it's easy, just say a prayer and you're good. No, the response was, Receive the free offer of eternal life through faith in Christ and then follow Jesus wherever he leads and whatever he calls you to do. And so Ian did. She trusted Jesus and then she followed him. It meant being forced to flee from her family. It meant being isolated and rejected by her friends. It means that even today her life is at risk from many But it also means that she is quietly and strategically and sacrificially working, even at risk to herself, to take the good news of Jesus Christ to anyone in her tribe that was 100% Muslim, that they might know this Savior too. That's what it looks like to trust Christ and follow him. That's just one story, of course. But it is one example of a young woman who realized that Jesus had given his life as a ransom for hers. It is one example of a young woman who put childlike faith in him and then gave her life as a servant for the sake of others. And though the details may look different, the call is the same for you 
and for me. And so as we close, would we heed that call? Would we heed that call, but also remembering Jesus' promise? When you do come to him in faith, you will find mercy and help from the one who gave his life as a ransom for yours. When you do follow him, you will find what he promised earlier in this chapter, 100-fold reward in this life and in the age to come, life with him forever. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for Mark chapter 10, which has brought us into contact with one person and one story after another, bringing us back to the response that you so long for and the response that alone brings us into the kingdom of heaven. A childlike faith and trust in Jesus that follows him wherever he leads. Father, would you make us yours and would you be with us through the fellowship of your sufferings, whatever you call us to? Would you draw our hearts to faith in you, trust in you, joy in you, even through those things as we know that we are walking the path you tread, giving our life for the sake of others because you have given your life for us. Father, would you make that true in our lives for your glory? We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.